Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We are closing in on a year into this pandemic. We just elected a new president. We've had a sports return at a professional level and collegiate level and around the country. Kids have continued to be involved in sports with some areas more restricted than others. Locally here around St. Louis and in Missouri, we've had sports for this fall, although some areas, including a good chunk of the St. Louis metropolitan area, got off to a late start from restrictions placed by the county health departments. But we've also seen state championships occur in the last few weeks, and I'm truly a believer that we can allow sports to happen, but it hasn't looked entirely normal and likely won't be for the foreseeable future. It's been three months since we've had a COVID update, and we talked about what will happen with fall sports. Today on the podcast, we will discuss a variety of things as to what we know about sports, what has worked and what hasn't, how do we move forward, and provide updates on the cardiac concerns in athletes with COVID. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, we are joined by three guests who have been here before. I'm going to have to call these three my COVID crew as they've really been great resources of information and have been intimately involved with the virus and how it affects sports participation in athletes. Dr. Jonathan Kim is a sports cardiologist at Emory University. He is a member of the NBA Cardiac Advisory Committee and the American College of Cardiology Sports and Exercise Council. Dr. Andy Peterson is a sports medicine physician and head team physician for the Iowa Hawkeyes. Dr. Jason Newland is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at St. Louis Children's Hospital and a member of the St. Louis Sports Medicine COVID-19 Task Force, which is on hold right now. I'd like to wish a warm welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast for Drs. Kim, Dr. Newland, and Dr. Peterson. Thanks for having us. So here we are nine months into this pandemic, just past a contested presidential election in which our current president stated after November 4th the virus would go away. I think the four of us know COVID-19 is here and not going away anytime soon as we continue to see record numbers of cases being reported daily. Fortunately, we aren't seeing a dramatic rise in deaths recently, which is a testament to our colleagues on the front lines finding out better ways to manage this problem, but we are still seeing a steady number of daily deaths attributed to COVID. We've all had some very different perspective in sports. Andy has had the Big Ten collegiate experience and the role of a head team physician for a Power 5 school who had their football season stopped only to be started again with some glitches along the way for some of the Big Ten teams, including our alma mater, Wisconsin. Jason and I have been mainly dealing with the high school population, and John has had the experience across the spectrum, but likely skewed a little bit towards the elite athlete. I figured since it's been three months since our last recording since this, fall sports in some areas are now wrapping up, winter sports starting, and the recent article, most importantly here that we're going to talk about with Dr. Kim being the lead author that was published on October 26th in JAMA Cardiology, the time was right for an update for COVID and the athlete. So I'm going to start with Jason. Jason, what have we learned in the last few months about kids and adolescents about the virus? We know at the start of this, we thought that kids and teens weren't particularly susceptible to the virus, but that's clearly no longer the thought process. We've heard about MIS-C, the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, the issue linked to COVID. Fortunately, we continue to see very few deaths from COVID for kids and teenagers, although we recently heard of a 13-year-old in our St. Louis area who died of COVID complications. So fill us in where we are, Jason. Mark, thanks again for having us. I can't believe it's been three months. I will say that children still appear to be mildly impacted directly from COVID-19. While we saw in the summertime that the teenage group were more likely to get infected and were driving some of the infections, we haven't seen the severe disease. Though we, unfortunately, our first death in the state of the Missouri, as you mentioned, occurred. And it's always heartbreaking when any child dies of an infectious disease like COVID-19 when you think you can prevent it from happening. A similar virus obviously is influenza. And just to put that into context, if you look at the U.S. deaths in children since the beginning of the pandemic, understanding that the pandemic has been going on for now, you know, we're into our eighth and ninth month, we've only had barely over 100 deaths. Now I say barely, not the right word, but if you look at influenza, there's over 150 deaths in a matter of two months every year in children. We're still lucky. We are seeing our trickling in of MISC or the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children. Those children seem to do well after we identify and treat them, though some can be quite ill. And there's still just a lot of unknown. I think lastly, I'll just put a plug that schools seem to be safe. Sports seem to be safe for children if we put the right mitigation processes in place. And 
our kids and those under 17 or 18, we need to make sure that they're getting what they need, that school, sports, and activities, but in a controlled fashion. Andy, the Big Ten, they were in, then they were out, and then they're back in again. But for football alone, we've seen some games happen. We've seen the Wisconsin Badgers have to shut things down only after their first game. I'd love to have you give us your experience, your perspective on the last few months, and also acknowledging and giving you a big thanks for taking some time to join us, as I know your life is obscenely crazy right now. Yeah, I would say at this point, our biggest challenges are logistic more than they are actually managing the virus and managing sick people. There's a lot of rules and regulations around what we need to do in order to be able to play and managing those is um, is very time consuming. We're in this daily antigen testing pool at this point. So all of our athletes and most of our staff are getting tested every day. We also have to be available to do PCR confirmatory tests afterwards and have to have pretty quick turnaround time on those in order to make that happen. Plus all the cardiology follow-up, you know, we're in the Big Ten, we're still doing cardiac MRIs on everybody as they're returning. So we're pretty busy on the logistics standpoint, but everything else has gone pretty smoothly. You know, we had a big outbreak in the number of cases in August as our students returned to campus. Sports had already been on campus for some time, but the remainder of the student population returned in August. We had a huge outbreak then. And then that kind of died down and it's been a steady trickle here over the last couple of months. And yeah, it, it kind of, I never thought I'd find myself saying this, but at this point, things seem to be going pretty smoothly for us. You mentioned the student population. Like what, what are you guys seeing right now at Iowa as far as kind of the prevalence out there in the students? To tell you the truth, I don't know what it is in the general student body at this point. For our student athletes, our test positivity rate is somewhere around 1%. Uh, it w- was a fair amount lower than that the last couple of weeks. And then this week we had seven or eight cases, so it bumped it up to about 1%. But our local infectious disease clinic, the ILI clinic that we use, is seeing a test positivity rate of almost 50%. I think they had 1,100 people that came through that clinic the other day. So we're still seeing a lot in the community. It just seems to be in different circles than where our athletes are. Yeah, I know at WashU here in St. Louis, where I'm involved with those athletes, we saw a big kind of surge kind of at the early part of this, well, kind of, I guess, the late part of the summer, early part of students starting to get come back to campus, although we started actually a little bit later than what we would normally do. And I'm certainly not hearing or seeing many of our athletes that are testing positive now, but I can tell you just walking around campus there, coming in to see athletes periodically, it's kind of a ghost town around campus. It's not its usual kind of hustle and bustle that it normally is this time of year. We've got still a fair number of students on campus. Most students are taking in-person classes here. Um, There are some options to online things, but it transitions to all online after Thanksgiving. So the next couple of weeks will definitely change after the holiday. Yeah, we have a little different approach where we were originally going to not have them come back after, and then now they are coming back after. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that little little blip there. Our current struggle right now is based on the Big Ten protocols, once someone tests positive, they don't have to get tested again for 90 days after that because a positive test is almost certainly to be a persistently positive test rather than a new infection. But we've got a ton of people from that wave we had in early August who are coming out of their 90-day post-infection period going back into the testing pool. And we're seeing a fair number of those persistently positive on their COVID test, you know, 90 plus days out. And so some of our struggles right now are trying to identify a new infection, a reinfection, and that you know, needle in the haystack. As we're getting a lot of a lot of people with persistently positive tests from their initial infection, it's difficult to weed out what new infections we have in that. We'll uh, we'll touch on that a little bit more after we talk a little bit about the updated article on cardiac concerns because I'd love to get everybody's kind of input on the as far as the retesting policy and and certainly Jason's input also on what do we see if as far as kind of coming down the road. But where I wanted to spend the bulk of our time and would love to have everyone contribute their thoughts about this is John was the lead author, as I mentioned earlier, of a JAMA cardiology article giving new perspectives and guidelines, some new flow charts about the thing that gave a lot of us pause with athletics. And that was the potential for cardiac complications, specifically myocarditis following COVID infection. John, can you start by giving us a brief summary of the process of the updated recommendations that were authored by you and several other prominent sports cardiologists around the country and maybe some key changes to the recommendations that were made from the spring? Sure, absolutely. And uh, just reiterate that it's uh, great to be with you guys again. And as mentioned, can't believe it's already been three months since the last time we did this. The impetus for this was really just the way things evolved over the last several months. Remembering that part of the reason why we made our first set of recommendations, which were really focused on the competitive athlete, this was all really motivated by what we were seeing among sick patients in the hospital. And we won't review all that. We've discussed that in, in detail. But we have to remember that we had no experience. This was all just based solely off of concern. And so what happened between May and now 
early November is, of course, that athletes were coming back. They were training. They were coming back to school. Sports resumed. As a backdrop, then, you had several high-profile athletes that were disclosing on their own that they were having cardiac issues. And, of course, that generated a lot of media attention. There are a couple studies. I think we, uh, at our last discussion, we talked a little bit about some of the MRI studies. Again, these studies had limitations, but they certainly generated concerns. So you had all these questions, a lot of national media attention, uh, headlines, and people were confused. And while we continue to wait for actual evidence-based registry data, we knew that really we still needed to help sports medicine practitioners, general cardiologists, sports cardiologists who are actively seeing athletes post-COVID and trying to assist with just all of the athletes that we were seeing. And this, I'm referring to the group of us eight authors that put together this document. And what we were seeing, and you've heard it already with some of the comments thus far, is most of the athletes, in fact, I would say the vast majority, were having either asymptomatic or very mild COVID. Dr. Bagish, who was the senior author on this piece and, and one of my good friends and colleagues, has made the point that there's almost, at least as it relates to athletes, and the way we think about this in a very simple way is there's almost two types of COVID, right? There's the COVID that we are most fearful of, where people get very sick. And then there's really what we've been seeing, which are the individuals that either have nothing and just get randomly tested and are positive for public health mitigation factors, and those that have very mild symptoms. And when we've done this cardiac testing, we've seen really no cardiac pathology. As it relates to all of the sports medicine and the, the, the athlete community, this was really meant to try to assist and recognize that that's what we were seeing. And as it relates to perhaps not the professional leagues and the power five, but for many of the other schools, smaller colleges, that when you think about the resources about all of this cardiac testing, we're just not seeing that much. Therefore, that was the biggest change was not the asymptomatics. We actually put forth in the first document that we didn't think asymptomatic COVID infections needed to be restratified. But for those with mild symptoms, and we can certainly get into what a mild symptom is. In fact, that's probably an important discussion. But for those, we're just, again, not seeing that much. Therefore, really us not recommending that there needed to be cardiac risk stratification there, but really more focused on self-isolation and a slow return to, to play and that kind of gradual return to full training. And that was the biggest change. And then, of course, expanding the recommendations to different populations. There was a lot of questions with the first document about, well, this is your competitive athlete. What about high school athletes? What about master's athletes, which, are, which of course, is the largest population of patients that we see in our clinics? How should we approach those? And Again, all of this is consensus-based. We clearly acknowledge that these are not evidence-based recommendations, but again, just based on what we were seeing, but we wanted to get into that. And then the last thing was just touching on some of these questions that all of us have been dealing with and we've seen all over the media. Should we be, some of these are kind of older questions now, but the question of postponing sports, canceling sports because of heart concerns with COVID and questions such as that. Let's talk a little bit about what you just described as far as a delineating between mild and moderate symptoms, because that was a change in there. You know, if we look at the 15 and older that you guys had put in your document for the flowchart, that does require some changes. So uh, if you could tell for us what mild symptoms were considered by your group, what moderate symptoms were, and then I'd love Jason's input on this just from the infectious disease standpoint. Do you feel that that's a reasonable stratification when we're looking at this? Absolutely. And look forward to hearing Jason's opinion on this and thoughts on this. Some of this is is certainly in the literature as it relates to mild versus moderate symptoms. And some of this, we actually, if you look at some of the references, would be put in as a kind of more mild symptoms, but we ended up classifying as moderate. The clear mild symptoms, which I think you would find in, in any document that in the literature that defines this would be your mild upper respiratory tract symptoms, sore throat, mild cough, congestion, mild gastrointestinal symptoms, nausea, diarrhea, loss of taste or smell. Now, fever, I think you'll find put forth as a mild symptom. Uh, we ended up classifying that as moderate because we really wanted to kind of differentiate things by more systemic symptoms versus more isolated symptoms, as I said, to like the respiratory tract or the GI system, et cetera. And uh, we try to be specific, though, as it relates to more persistent fever. So if somebody has a temperature that lasts a day with maybe a mild cough or sore throat and that all resume, resolves quickly, then that's not what we're considering moderate. It's really more the persistent fever that lasts a couple of days or more associated with chills, myalgias, 
And where I think there would be no debate about mild versus moderate would be once you include cardiovascular symptoms, chest tightness, clear shortness of breath, anything that you would start considering myocarditis as a potential possibility that falls in the moderate category. Part of the reason why fever was put more in the moderate as well is, and again, this is just more anecdotal experience, but certainly in my clinic, I've not seen a ton of fever in the athletes that I've seen for risk stratification. Certainly have seen it, but the overwhelming majority have been the either asymptomatics or loss of taste, little sore throat, and it all gets better within a couple of days. And then we also put an emphasis on persistent symptoms. So once you're 10 days and more with really any symptom, that's whenever you want to consider more uh, detailed cardiovascular risk stratification. I'll say I think that's you know extremely reasonable and it makes sense, right? I think the persistence of symptoms to me makes the most sense with you know how fever can be because most, like you said, if you look at the data and especially in the young, you know, in the children, I mean, less a half or less when they are confirmed with COVID nineteen have fever. We created an algorithm for local pediatricians on who should they test? Because especially early on when we didn't have the testing capability, and we actually put symptoms into, and I'm putting these in air quotes, high risk and low risk, not meaning anything. And we actually debated fever, and we actually put fever and low risk, thinking that there was going to be a number of kids that came in with just some fever, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's COVID-19. I think that has played out as we've collected some data somewhat that while fever is a little bit more common than some of these others, it's maybe not as specific. Um, and I think this is going to be that ongoing challenge for all of us as well as we try to risk stratify and understand some of the further complications of this virus. You know, what what does set somebody apart? But I, I'm with you, uh, John. I think that the persistence, you know, most of these things are, most of these kids are having short, mild-like symptoms go get better pretty fast in the childhood age group. Um, and I think that's going to matter more. Now we have learned in the in the adults that about thirty five percent are in this quote unquote long hauler group that do have persistence. And as you're older, there's more. And I think there's just a lot more to learn as we move forward throughout this pandemic and even into the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Particularly the the long haul, I, I've seen certainly several cases with the persistent symptoms. We've done the stratification and. The majority, I would say, again, I think it's really important to emphasize that the vast majority of athletes really get back to their baseline. And so the, the long haulers, those who have kind of symptoms that just aren't getting better and, and maybe have normal cardiac testing, including a cardiac MRI, that's not the, the norm. But not just persistence, I'd also, again, like to emphasize that the failure to regain exercise tolerance. So when somebody returns to play, developing recurrent symptoms or new symptoms. That's the other kind of critical red flag. And I think that also is kind of the, the, the fail safe in this as well. Any sort of risk stratification algorithm, you're not going to capture everybody. So I think we all recognize that. But for listeners, it's important to understand that, is it possible somebody could have mild symptoms and potentially have something? Uh, of course, that's, that's always possible. And so that's where this gradual return to play, looking for symptoms that come about during that process or just a failure to gain exercise tolerance. I think that's an important point of emphasis. Yeah. You know, I'll just add, I, if you guys published this, uh, we had a local pediatrician, one of our local pediatric cardiologists had given a talk about your guys's work. And, um, our pediatrician had a son who didn't have, couldn't went out to run and couldn't do it. Got into the cardiologist, did the testing and thankfully there was nothing there, but I think that, that that's so important. So I just wanted to reiterate that own personal story. We've already seen it once in my own community. I also want to mention the scope of this risk stratification strategy. You know, for us, we have to do uh, cardiac evaluation on everybody returning to sport in the Big Ten. So um, going all the way back to the spring, that's involved in ECG, echocardiogram, troponins, and a, and a clinical visit. Uh, everything, everyone who's tested positive since September 16th has also had to get a cardiac MRI. And so we've had well over 200 people who have gotten a basic cardiac evaluation and another almost 100 that have gotten a cardiac MRI at this point. If we had been following this newer risk stratification approach, we'd probably have four or five that would have gotten formal cardiac evaluation, including cardiac MRI. So, you know, th this is a huge difference in terms of the burden of administrative time and cost for a university like ours. Going back to the, the, the cardiac MRI, I know we talked a little bit about this at our last meeting and podcast, 
but we spent a lot of time going into into that specific question. And for obvious reasons, um, between the original Putman et al. study, but colleagues of yours and mine, of course, at Ohio State with the Rajpal study, led by Dr. Daniels, of course, it's really important to, to get into that. And, you know, I want to reiterate that I think studies um, such as the Rajpal study, and uh, there's actually a new study that you can actually pull up online now that's going to be published in Jack Imaging that came from colleagues at West Virginia University, that these kind of observational case series using MR are finding things by cardiac MRI. But the critical thing that's important to take in mind, and we approach this with really anything in medicine, right, guys? It's the whole kind of Bayesian pretest probability question. And when you have a study that's so sensitive with cardiac MRI, the thing you always have to keep in mind is the the specificity, of course, and the concern for false positives. And one of the analogy that we put forth in the document to, that I think everybody can relate to is ECG screen, right? So you go back 15, 20 years, and when we were all having the question about interpreting ECGs for the athlete, now we have the international criteria, of course, from 2017, but you go back to the early European guidelines in 2005, and the false positive rate was was insane. And you had more athletes than necessary that were being restricted because of normal ECGs for them. And we have to keep that in mind as we're learning more about COVID and the impact on the heart. Absolutely. We need to proceed on with these phenotypic studies, understanding disease pathogenesis and how cardiac MRI can be helpful, understanding where cardiac MRI could be helpful in the risk stratification. And I think the Big Ten, of course, has resources just given all of these large institutions to be able to conduct MRIs in an academic and research fashion. But for everybody else, it's important to emphasize that uh, we certainly do not endorse using cardiac MRIs in the screening process for exactly that reason. And some of these criticisms of the prior studies are, are very important as it relates to lack of controls, not just in healthy athletes, but I think we mentioned before in the past, we don't know what a cardiac MRI looks like in somebody who just is recovering from a seasonal flu for from enterovirus, and are you going to see pericardial enhancement or some of this nonspecific late gadolinium enhancement? Even the criteria that we use, the MRI criteria called the Lake Louise criteria to document true cardiac inflammation, if you look at the guidelines for myocarditis, it's all specifically noted that this is within a, uh, a clinical presentation that's consistent with myocarditis, which is an individual who had fever, chest pain, chest tightness. There's Usually there's other studies that have, have been obtained, whether it's ECG or echocardiogram, uh, an echocardiogram, which uh, the, the pretest probability and suspicion for myocarditis uh, jumps up enormously. And then you get a cardiac MRI and there you go, you find evidence of it versus, hey, uh, I'm just going to get an MRI on you because you tested positive for COVID. That's where we have to be really careful about our thoughts about that specific study. You know, when you have these large outbreaks uh, that you've heard, so uh, just one example, and again, I'm not affiliated with uh, Oklahoma, but I just remember a couple months ago, there were, I think there was like a time where 30 people tested positive. Well, getting 30 cardiac MRIs, um, particularly the quality that's needed, because you can't just send somebody down the street to the, the local clinic to get a cardiac MRI where there are all of these specific techniques to look for these findings is not easy. And, and you you clearly have to question the technical quality of these studies. And when you have that many, when you're also intermixing in patients who truly need cardiac MRI, then uh, again, these are all valid criticisms about uh, how this should be uh, employed in this process. And I think that's an important point there you you raise as far as the accessibility to the test. I mean, that that can be a struggle. And especially when you have an athlete who may be a little anxious about the fact that they're having to get this test and what does that mean? And you know, I'm sure they've heard that they may have to be out for several months after if they do get diagnosed with myocarditis. So I think you guys are learning in sports cardiology what we've known in sports medicine from the musculoskeletal side for a while is that the MRI can be our friend, but it also can be our enemy because we, we know that there are many, many studies out there that show the asymptomatic person who has a an MRI finding, you know, meniscal tears is an example in the knee, rotator cuff tears that may be asymptomatic. I, I'm glad you guys are talking about in terms of the clinical relevance of this too. I, I think a couple interesting things just kind of in this discussion that we've talked about, I, 
and I'd love to hear Andy's take on this too. I've been actually amazed by the number of kids that we've seen at the collegiate level, because that's where I've been screening the most kids who have had loss of taste and smell. It's probably upwards of 75% of the kids that I've seen through as we're screening these kids and, and looking at them for return to play who have had that. I've been pretty impressed with that. But the other thing that we can talk about this a little bit too, and from the fever standpoint of where we, where we categorize fever, it's interesting if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics document on things that would be medical disqualifications for an athlete for participation in sports. Fever is one of those things on that list. And the specific reason why fever is listed on there is because of the risk of myocarditis. So I'd, I'd love to see what anybody's uh, take is on that. I and mean, maybe we need to revise why we're saying that there, but but that's out there. And it's, it's a published guideline from the AAP. Well, first of all, in, in terms of what symptoms we're seeing, about 70% of the people that end up having a positive test with us are completely asymptomatic. So not even mild symptoms. Of that 30% that are symptomatic, the vast majority of those do have loss of taste and smell. And it's a very, very small number of folks that have any more severe symptoms. Uh, a lot of people are having a little cough, congestion, maybe a day of fever, but boy, not a lot that's persistent and not a lot that, that's very severe. We've had a few. We've had a few that have gotten fairly sick, but no one who's been sick enough to be hospitalized or, or anything like that. In terms of the AAP recommendations on competing with fever, you know, that's based a little bit on epidemiologic data. There, there are some old papers that people are more likely to have fatal arrhythmias when they're febrile. So it's not just the myocarditis risk, it's also just some basic epidemiology. I think people have used fever as an explanation, as kind of the proximate cause for why people are more likely to die when they're febrile, but it's a bit of a guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably, from the infectious disease standpoint, don't want them playing when they're febrile because I'm afraid they're infectious with something, but that's not what we're here to talk about. I mean, I think the, the studies of, of the risk factors associated with true clinically relevant myocarditis will be what's needed. We embarked on what symptoms we think are going to be more predictive or what factors are more predictive of a child showing up to a pediatric clinic and you test positive and not surprising, loss of taste or smell is one, just as you mentioned, Mark, that's what you're seeing. Another one is actually if you've been exposed to someone with COVID-19, also not surprising. After that, it looks pretty much like everything else, but I think that's the next step, right, for for this discussion in regards to myocarditis. And frankly, it might this might not be anything as we move forward later on, but you guys will note know that before me, and that's why I'm glad I'm on this podcast to learn from you all. And I'd just like to add on one point, too. One, just agree with Andy as well as it relates to the, the loss of taste or smell and what they've been seeing at University of Iowa. It has been striking to me that that, and again, I haven't sat down and calculated my own numbers in my clinic, but I feel like, again, just kind of anecdotally that the overwhelming majority have those symptoms. It's, it's, it is very interesting. And one other point I'd just like to make, which is separate from the question, but I just want to make sure that's mentioned before I forget, which is the, the emphasis that as we learn about, co- I mean, there's so much about COVID that we don't know. The underlying pathophysiology for cardiac injury with COVID is still not that well understood. I mean, we clearly know that it's related probably more than anything else to systemic inflammation. But if you look at the autopsy case series, and I think there was a recent literature review that actually looked at the compilation of this, many of the autopsy series don't show a pathologically defined myocarditis. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that quote-unquote myocarditis isn't happening because there's at least one autopsy series, I think, which showed that. But viral invasion of the myocardium associated with lymphocytic infiltration, that that kind of pathology has not universally been shown. It is interesting, you know, again, we throw that term around so much with myocarditis and COVID, and we've always been very careful as it relates to really emphasizing that that's the case. And in fact, if you look at our most recent document, that was something we tried to do. So if you kind of actually go back and just focus in on what that term myocarditis is mentioned, it's, you know, written whenever we were talking about myocarditis in general, not specifically related to COVID-induced myocarditis. And now we sometimes talk about that's the concern, but it's important to emphasize that. And if you go back even to the very beginning, colleagues of mine were really emphasizing that we need to be careful about when we talk about the troponin rise that relates to COVID and not just calling it myocarditis, really just calling it cardiac injury, uh, which is a better, more generic term. But it's an important point to emphasize that Again, over the coming months to however long, we're, we're going to learn so much more about actually what's going on with how the heart is impacted from COVID, severe COVID infection. 
you know, I, I have a I have a mentor from that got me into pediatric infectious diseases who is an introvirus researcher. And my initial fellowship work was in introvirus research. And he told me, he goes, I think we're going to potentially see dilated cardiomyopathies occur at the end of this. And I found that fascinating just because we don't know, is this truly myocarditis? So that what you just described suggests that's not going to happen potentially, but I, I, it's just unknown. Right. And, and even, as I said, the story is going to be written over the years. I mean, we're, we're a society that we just, we feel like we need to know everything within a couple months. <laughs> yeah. But another interesting question is sudden cardiac death and the epidemiology. One of the things that we've mentioned, which I think is important, is particularly as you look at the percentage prevalence of abnormal cardiac MRIs in the Rajpal study and others that will be coming, I mean, these are percentages that are quite high. And I can certainly affirm, at least at present, that there has not been a rise in myocarditis either seen in the hospital or patients presenting to clinic with concerning symptoms and found to have myocarditis. Because you got to remember, just because you're an athlete, doesn't mean you're going to have COVID impacting you any different than any of the general population. So we really should be seeing a rash of myocarditis, which we are not seeing. But that doesn't mean, again, that this isn't important. And a year from now, two years from now, we need to really look at the epidemiology of sudden cardiac death in athletes. Are we going to see an uptick? To your point, Jason, are we going to see more dilated cardiomyopathy? I mean, we don't know. I mean, God forbid it happens, but those are some of these questions that we're just going to have to wait over time to see because we clearly know that there's a ton of athletes that are being infected with COVID. I mean, we're all seeing it. And right now we're seeing kind of reassuring trends. And that's why you're seeing the recommendations change that we put forth. And we're obviously very pleased that these individuals we're seeing right now don't appear to be that sick. But uh, I think it's going to be really important to kind of track these trends over time. We'll be right back after a brief break and continue our discussion of COVID-19 and sports. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing the Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. We are back with Dr. Kim, Dr. Newland, and Dr. Peterson, and we are continuing our discussion about all things COVID and sports. John, I'd like to get your input on another change that was made to the document, and that was stratification based on age when we're talking about the pediatric athlete. And as a pediatric sports medicine physician, this has a lot of relevance to me. I could understand a reason for stratification there based on what we've seen here in St. Louis, because we follow the data very closely here. And we clearly saw that the rates of positivity took a big spike and the number of people being infected was when you hit the 14, 15-year-old age group. And and there obviously could be all sorts of reasons for why that is, just as far as exposures and possibilities to get infected. But I'd be curious to see if there was something that you guys have been seeing in the data to now stratify the 15 and older person into a different category as far as how we look at the algorithm for return to play, because that does obviously have some implications for testing for that moderately symptomatic person. Yeah, and uh, thank you for bringing that up because it is an important point, that 15 number. And to be very clear, that number came about because that's kind of the lower limit of where we see. Now, I I was trained in internal medicine and pediatrics, but 
to be transparent, I shifted my focus to internal medicine. So I did not take my general pediatric board that obviously completed the residency, but then I did an adult cardiology fellowship. So I very comfortably see athletes down to around the age of 15, maybe 14 if you're more physically developed. But certainly I'm not arrogant to the point where I think I can see 10 and 11 year olds in my clinic just because I did the residency. And many of my colleagues still also have that cut point, even those who didn't have any pediatric training. And I think that's reasonable whenever you're seeing older adolescent kids who are physically mature and, and more developed. So that's where that cut point came about. And if you look at what we said, I think I'm actually reassured to hear from others on on the podcast, particularly Jason, about seeing that kids generally do quite well and don't get that sick at all, which is what our understanding is, of course. For the less than 15, we commented on that. Of course, we we did comment on the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that we need to be weary of that. It's obviously more of a rare outcome, thankfully. But once you start getting more of the significant symptoms, the one thing we didn't want to do were two things. Number one, start saying, well, you got to restratify those because these are physically less developed. And I mean, that's not our area of expertise. That's uh, obviously, I'm not seeing that population. And so we just made it a point that this is probably one where you want to get your pediatrician involved. And certainly, it may be that those individuals don't need this for stratification. We know myocarditis is, from an epidemiologic standpoint, is not as common in younger children compared to as you get older. Now, once you're over 15, of course, that is more in our wheelhouse. And one of the points that I always felt, even with the earlier algorithm and algorithms and talking with local high schools in the Atlanta area about what to do about that population was, well, if you're a senior in high school and you're you know, 17, how is it different between 17, six months later, if you're a spring athlete and then you're a freshman in college and now you're getting echo ECG troponin, but in high school, we're saying you don't need anything if you had the same symptoms. There's, there's really not a difference there, you know, as, as you'd expect. And a lot of recommendations were, well, we'll just get an EKG. And, and that's a concern because the sensitivity of EKG alone for myocarditis is about 47%. Again, this was one where we felt that, okay, most of these individuals aren't going to have significant symptoms, so they don't need this type testing and they can have this kind of gradual return. And we think that's not a danger to them. But if you do have concerning cardiac symptoms or persistent symptoms, those are the ones that you really should think the same as if they were a competitive collegiate athlete in the Power Five. And, you know, the question of healthcare resources obviously is a, a separate bear. We felt that in general, these recommendations were helpful to the general population in the United States at large because we clearly know not everybody can access even an EKG on a moment's notice. But given the majority of those individuals probably don't need an ECG, we don't need to just start putting that kind of stress on local high schools or colleges and in, in regions where they don't have that accessibility. Some other things that we can talk about here is just what have we seen at the high school level? I mean, we can certainly, Jason and I can talk about our experience in Missouri. I'd love to hear what your guys' experiences have been and what you've seen for athletes participating in Iowa and Georgia. We decided to move forward with fall sports in Missouri, and there was an option for high school athletes to be able to go to an alternative fall season. So if schools decided that they felt the risk was too high or something happened, you know, say that their school decided to change how they've kind of approached the the pandemic and, and they wanted to postpone sports, they could do that. And we've had several schools, mostly in the St. Louis metropolitan area, pri primarily the St. Louis city, who have moved to that alternative fall season. But we have seen, and we have a kind of a big contrast here is that the county that I live in, which is more suburban St. Louis compared to the city itself, there has been a big contrast in what we've seen as far as sports participation. We saw our high school athletes doing full sports, although with mitigation efforts. And I, I would have to say, as someone who has been very conservative and very outspoken about masks and all these types of things, I think for the most part, sports have gone on pretty well. I think schools have taken it seriously. I mean, we're in playoffs right now for football. And the team that I cover from a high school standpoint just got advanced to the next round because the team we were supposed to play had to be isolated because of quarantine issues due to COVID. So we got a free pass, which is actually one of the other teams we cover had the, the same issue happen to them. So we're seeing a lot of fallout now as playoffs have come around. But, you know, I, I've seen sports go on. We were all, I think, probably a little bit apprehensive what would happen with football, especially at the high school level, because we do not have we're not doing the widespread testing like we are at, at college. 
what, what are you guys seeing elsewhere? I, I, I've been actually pleasantly pleased with just overall how things have gone with high school sports. And we can certainly talk in a little bit about what does that mean for winter sports? And, and especially I'd like to get Andy's take on, on wrestling as a former wrestler and dealing with the, the powerhouse Hawkeyes. Yeah, I think we're seeing similar to you. I think most places are taking it fairly seriously and some aren't. And that's just kind of the nature of it. You know, we're not seeing a lot of consequences when people aren't taking it seriously. Uh, obviously, there's pockets where people are masking better than others. There's places where testing is better than others. There's places where social distancing is better than others. But you know, it, it doesn't seem to be affecting high school sports a whole lot. We're just not getting a lot of sick athletes at, at any level. I think it's remarkable that we aren't seeing transmission between teams. And, and I think you can, in football specifically, and you can take it back just looking at what's happened in the NFL with the outbreaks that have occurred and not seeing that the teams that they have played, there's not transmission. Or even in college, like Notre Dame, my alma mater, you know, they had their outbreak right before the University of South Florida game, and you never heard anything about anybody in the University of South Florida. And I, and I think that's – I find that interesting because people – that's where people were worried is that they were going to spread it during games because of the high contact. And frankly, what we've learned from the virus is it feeds on gathering and kind of gathering together. And so, you know, there's some newer – there's some data that suggests 10 to 20 percent of the infected people lead to about 80 to 90 percent of the transmission. I mean, it's not surprising there's been a, a jump on – Thursday and Friday in our region and maybe nationwide when you think that Halloween was six to seven days before because people still gathered while they thought they were outside and happy. I've, there's, I've, near my neighborhood, supposedly, there was a bigger gathering and huh, there's positive cases. So I find that interesting. I think that gives some, I think, more hope when it comes to sports and what things have to be done to you know prevent transmission. I would add to that that I think if you talk to the sports stocks who have been around the teams from the beginning of this, we have been seeing so little transmission on the playing field during practice that we are not super surprised that there's not much transmission between teams. I mean, our team is practicing together you know, 20 hours a week, and then we go went and played Michigan State for four hours yesterday. You know, The risk of transmission within our practice time has got to be dramatically higher than the risk of transmission playing another team. But we're still not seeing much transmission within our facilities. When we contact trace our cases back, we almost always find evidence of community spread. People are still picking us up at social gatherings from roommates, things like that. We're seeing very little spread that's actually directly associated with sport. I mean, even in the big ones that have gotten a lot of attention, you know, Florida had a big outbreak here and that got traced back to you know, their travel. It wasn't, it wasn't from their practice. It wasn't from the things that we think of as high risk. It was traveling together. So Andy, with that being said, what are your thoughts as a, a wrestling guru for wrestling coming up? And I know we've had some of these discussions a little bit offline. Wrestling, we obviously think of as more kind of significantly close contact than we would even for football. What are your thoughts about wrestling moving forward for this winter? Yeah, I would say wrestling has one significant advantage and one significant disadvantage. The disadvantage is obviously the close physical contact, right? If you're wrestling with someone who has this, this virus odds are you're going to get it. I mean, that's about as close to physical contact as you get in sport. The obvious advantage is that it's easy to keep track of who trains with who and who competes against who. You know, we're going full speed with wrestling in our facilities right now. And all we do is keep a spreadsheet of who everyone's practice partners are. And if we have someone test positive or get sick, contact tracing is a snap. I mean, it's a five minute thing instead of a five hour thing. Yeah, I think that's a good perspective. Oh, oh, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say numbers matter, right? I mean, that's the, that is the beauty of wrestling. The piece of this for the winter sports is what's the indoor setting going to be like? You know, I've heard locally and from colleagues nationally that in the fall sports, they saw potential transmission between teams with volleyball and that you saw maybe transmission there. And, you know, they're anecdotal. And is that going to be, and does that put us at risk for basketball? There's a hockey outbreak that was reported by the CDC among teams and others kind of pick up hockey games. So that, you know, what, how is that going to be different is some of the stuff that I'm curious about and how we go forward. Let me tell you the sport that I'm terrified of and you're not going to guess it, but it's rowing. Yeah, you know, yeah, because oh. there's a lot of rowing in Iowa. Yeah, yes, I, I mean, can see that. They train together in pretty tight spaces. It's highly aerobic. You can space people out a little bit. They're in boats together. Yeah, they're trying to limit to just fours instead of eights, but they're all together. If you don't have the same types of resources around rowing like you do a sport like football, so the testing is going to be a little bit more shoestring. 
uh, it's just going to be a challenge. That's the sport I'm actually terrified of. I think we'll get through basketball. I think we'll get through wrestling. Football's going smoothly. I don't know how we're going to do rowing. It's interesting, all of our perspectives on where we think that the biggest risk is going to come from. And then hopefully we're all talking about this maybe in another three months and saying, yeah, winter sports went okay. <laughs> that's that's my hope. Well, you know, a bigger issue for the high school athlete and uh, let's just say middle school and elementary school has not been what's going to stop this is what you mentioned about the team when you was covering that had to forfeit. It's the quarantining. It's because they're in classrooms, even though they're masked, a lot of schools are masked in the mitigation strategies in some of our states. It's because, you know, masks don't get you out of quarantining. We're seeing swaths of kids who were not seeing transmission in school being quarantined. And I know like in the state of Iowa, you don't get quarantined if you are in a mask. And, you know, the CDC policy isn't there yet. And I think this is a bigger issue than the actual sport itself. It's the all the stuff around it that leads to people, kids being out of being able to play. Yeah, just to clarify the Iowa rule, it's if both parties are masked throughout. So if either party is unmasked, you still have to quarantine. No, thank you for doing that. Yep. And that was our issue we had for the the local high school football team that I cover is we we lost eight of our starters the day of our playoff game or actually the the last regular season game and then trailed into our first playoff game because of quarantine issues, not related to any positive tests on the football team, but because of a quarantine exposure in school. So it's interesting as far as kind of where we're seeing kind of the biggest issues here. You know, some athletes have taken the approach that are in families that, you know, that when it comes close to time for a game or that week for playoffs, some kids have been staying home and doing the virtual school option instead, or, or just, you know, not going to school so that they don't risk that so they can continue to compete. We can have all sorts of discussions on that. We're not going to do that on this podcast today. But going back to John with the document again, any changes that suggested to the return to play progression? I know there have been some published ones out there suggesting a seven step or a seven day, five step protocol that was recommended in British Journal of Sports Medicine a while back. Any thoughts to changes in that? I know on the document and the flow chart, one of the things you put down there is supervised, slow return to play, supervised by their athletic trainer, which obviously we can also go on and point that not every kid at their high schools obviously, unfortunately, has the opportunity to have an athletic trainer available to them to supervise that progression. So any thoughts on any changes or do you still think that that seven day return to play is a reasonable way of doing it? Yeah, no, this is this is one of the you know, the unfortunate parts of having a data-free zone. And I think certainly I have no critiques for the, for seven days. That being said, I think there is room for individualization and taking into account who that athlete is. Some may take longer than others. Also taking into account how sick they were. I mean, an asymptomatic who did their 10 days, did they need a seven-day kind of return to play ramp up? And, you know, it's, it's a reasonable challenge, I think, about is that a bit excessive? Now, again, that be, we, we don't have the data, though, to, to say that that's not correct. I have some colleagues that have come up with their own approach where if it's asymptomatic, they'll expedite it to two days, 48 hours. And then if they had symptoms, they'll turn it into five days, depending on, you know, the degree of symptoms that that athlete had. And I think that the important thing is just to, if you're working with a Power Five School is an example to provide some leeway to the athletic trainers to kind of come up with some of these protocols on their own. Certainly, they can be made in conjunction with the cardiologist and the primary care sports medicine. That's some of the ways we, we put things together for the university that I work with. At the high school level, for sure, as you mentioned, not everybody has the luxury of having a trainer to, to work with us. And I think that is where coming up with these kind of generic timeframes makes sense. And uh, I don't feel too opposed to the, certainly I would agree that if somebody's asymptomatic, they can probably be pushed forward at, at a quicker pace um, versus if they had symptoms. So whether that's two to three days for asymptomatic versus five, again, those are kind of reasonable generic cut points. And we also have to keep in mind, again, particularly for I'm sure Andy would attest, you know, once you get to a certain level, particularly at the highly competitive levels, there's a separate pressure, right? And, and obviously at the professional levels as well. You know, if you're in the NFL, of course, and you're asymptomatic, trying to get an additional seven days, good luck with that. And, you know, that, that obviously I think is a part of the equation as well, particularly whenever you don't really know what the right time frame is. 
you know, you have the same challenge when we talk about this from cardiology now with the return to play progression. We have the the same thing from a, a concussion standpoint. We've had 20 years now because it was 2000 that our Canadian colleagues put out expert guidance as far as a five-step return to play progression for concussion. And we still don't have, at least to my knowledge, any evidence base to show that that actually is the most appropriate way to work someone back in after they've been cleared from their concussion. We we put all sorts of ideas out there as far as why we think that needs to happen, but there, there still is not any kind of true evidence base to show that five days and how we do it is exactly the right way to do it. And so it, I, it's a challenge, obviously, of course. Um, you know, you talked about asymptomatics. Andy, can you tell us a little bit about how the Big Ten has dealt with asymptomatic positive test athletes? Asymptomatic positives get treated just like a symptomatic positive for us. You know, they still have to do a 10-day isolation period, and then around day 14, they can get their cardiac testing, which at this point involves an ECG, uh, echocardiogram, troponin, and a cardiac MRI, as well as a visit with our sport cardiologist. If that all goes well, then they get a seven-day graduated return-to-play process that can theoretically be on the field at day 21. Some people are cheating up a little bit on the cardiac testing just so we can get the graduate return to play process because the only hard line there is day 21. We're not allowed to have people on the field practicing full speed or, or competing full speed before day 21. So most of our cardiac testing is happening somewhere around days 11 to 14, uh, including in completely asymptomatic individuals. And, and I would agree that in terms of how you guys are moving up a little bit on the testing and uh, even if you look at our most recent recommendations, uh, we make it pretty clear that once you finish self-isolation, then it's reasonable to get cardiac testing. Um, and that's the time to do the risk stratification, particularly if somebody's recovered. Part of the reason why the first recommendations, we put it at 14 days, again, was really recognizing, again, that people can get sicker during the second week. Obviously, CDC kind of updated that and then called it at 10 days. And so that's where we felt it was reasonable to do that. I think in general that for leagues, for any institution that's coming up with rules, getting your testing once that 10 days is up front is, is very, very reasonable, certainly in alignment with these consensus recommendations. Now, of course, if you're not at a, if you're not with a professional team, you're not at a power five school where you can get testing done expeditiously, then it may take up to day 14 or even longer to get things kind of in, in the queue to get done. And that's just, you know, the part of health, the challenge of healthcare resources. It's not just a power five, non-power five. There, there's big, powerful colleges that don't have medical schools associated with them and do not have these resources in their community uh, readily available. You know, several big 10 schools, you have to travel quite a ways in order to get high quality cardiac MRI. So uh, we're very lucky at Iowa to have a great team of sport cardiologists and great access to the resources we need. But it's not even that way across the entire Big Ten. That's an important point. You're absolutely right. It is, and that, of course, just goes back to the question. You know, the the challenge of cardiac MRIs. Uh, I mean, at any point in time, if there's ever any evidence, and again, to be clear, my, my opinion right now is I don't think this will ever come about. But if there is any evidence that you have to have a cardiac MRI with anybody who has COVID before you have to return to play, that's a situation where then you can actually say, boy, can we be doing playing sports right now? Because that is just not a test that it's not like getting an EKG where you just you can go to your local clinic. But uh, again, at least at present, I, I don't think the evidence will justify that ever to be the case. Let's wait for more data, though. And we'll finish up with touching on one point before I give you guys the opportunity to all have kind of a parting comment or our pearl, as we talked about before. Andy, you had kind of alluded to this earlier about as far as the need to retest. And, you know, we know that there is some immunity, at least for most people that we, we've seen so far who have tested positive. What's going on in the Big Ten as far as kind of the approach to testing again down the road and also for the, the massive screening that you guys are doing in the Big Ten on that regular basis, what happens to an athlete once they have tested positive? Do they come out of that testing pool? And, and when do you guys reconsider starting them up again? Correct. Yeah. There's a 90 day window after a positive test where they do not have to be retested at all. And also if they contact trace into a situation where they would have to be quarantined, they also don't have to quarantine in that 90 day window. Now, the struggle has been that as folks are coming out of their 90-day window, we're having a lot of people test positive, and I don't think anyone really believes that these are second infections. Now, second infections are possible. It's also possible that the initial positive test was a false positive and that the second one is one that we actually care about. But from the numbers that we're having, I don't think anyone thinks that these are much more than persistently positive tests for the vast majority of people. 
So there's been some discussion about expanding that 90-day window. You probably saw this week that the NCAA has proposed moving to 150 days. And that's based on a paper that was in Science last week, suggesting that most people have neutralizing antibodies out to five months after an infection. Not just most, but the vast majority of people have neutralizing antibodies out to five months. There's also other conferences that are using 180 days, and that's based on the idea that other similar RNA viruses that mutated about the same rate don't tend to recur in the same individual within a six-month period. Um, you know, seasonal influenza tends not to hit the same person within six, six months. Rhinovirus does the same. So we're likely going to have to expand that 90-day um, window just because the logistics of dealing with all these persistently positive people is becoming quite challenging. I think this is a... It's- such an important point. It's good that, you know, Andy, you and the Big Ten and others who have been doing this sort of testing will have that data because that'll need to be out there because there's a lot of, I'm about to start a new project with a school locally where we're going to do weekly testing. And we've basically said, we'll do, if you're positive, we won't test you for 12 weeks. But, you know, data that you have would suggest that when I start retesting them and I'm going to see positive, I'm like, hmm, that's probably the same one, just like we think. And, so I think this will be important. And while there's been the reported reinfections, they've been the the earliest one I know is 142 days after their original positive, and they don't seem to be that sick. Though there's other reports, so the reinfection data is pretty pretty rare so far. And with the testing data that you all will have, that hopefully will, could potentially change policy going forward, especially at the higher levels like CDC and others. Yeah, the data in the Wanberg paper from, from Science last week is, is pretty convincing that anyone who had a real infection is pretty safe for at least 150 days. So just to finish up here, we're going to go kind of around the horn, so to speak, and giving you guys an opportunity if there's where we think we need to go next. What, what do you guys envision kind of things are going on for winter? Any parting comments or things that we still need to be thinking about when, it talk, when we're talking about COVID and the athlete? So we'll start off with, with John, and then we'll go to Jason. We'll finish up with Andy. Well, thank you again, Mark, for, for getting the gang back together. I love hearing the thoughts from my sports medicine and infectious disease colleagues, as well as just a, nice to hear, you know, we're sometimes are in our own echo chamber uh, as a sports cardiologist in terms of what we think about. So to hear the thoughts as it relates to these recommendations from other disciplines is, is really important to hear. Uh, so I just end with, again, something I think I ended the last time with which is that really to me, as it relates to the cardiology aspect, it still goes back to public health. And, and this is something that um, we emphasize in this updated document and goes in line with the question of going on with sports. And we're proving that obviously just in real time that we can certainly do it. Just hearing it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear kind of Andy's thoughts over what's been going on at his own school and University at Iowa. In the end, it's not the heart that should bring down sports as it relates to postponing the cancellation. It goes back again to all of these mitigation procedures to prevent spread. And as, as long as that's going on, then continuing on with sports is important. We know that. And when we can handle it on the sports cardiology side, while well, we continue to garner data. So it'll be interesting to see how the winter sports proceed. I enjoyed kind of hearing the, the, the thoughts from Andy and Jason on that. As you said, Mark, perhaps we'll do another one of these in a few months and we can, we, they'll have, there'll be more information to talk about. I'll just say that I think uh, we have learned a lot. I think I've been pleasantly surprised at how safe sports have been, whether they're the high contact, moderate contact, low contact. I believe what has been shown and demonstrated is that with thought and great planning and just people all unified that you can do this safely. And we need to continue to advocate for our athletes, our young people, our students, and then our pediatric population that these activities are exceedingly important for them and their development. And we have noted that some of the indirect impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic or some of the hitting costs of this have been our kids not being able to do some of the things that we have now shown are safe. And that includes sports as well as school and other things that we need to continue to promote. And the better way and the, the make it easier for this to occur is, as John just said, we have to unify on preventing transmission through what we know has worked and can work. And that's masking, distancing, washing your hands and really limiting the, the large gatherings that we like to do outside of when we have structured activity. For the folks that listen to the 
previous versions of this conversation, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I just want to remind people that uh, our conversation today is of trivial importance compared to how important it is to have a well-trained athletic trainer on the sideline and access to AEDs. We want to talk about saving lives from a cardiovascular standpoint. That stuff is dramatically more important than whether or not we're getting a cardiac MRI on a Division One athlete. Appreciate the insight, everyone. I'd really like to thank Dr. Kim, Dr. Newland, and Dr. Peterson for once again providing some great information to our listeners. We will have links to the documents we've referenced to in this podcast on our show notes. We will be sure to bring you some timely updates again in the future as new information is available about COVID relevant to athletes. Please check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We appreciate your feedback and ratings on your favorite streaming site. If you haven't done so yet, please leave a brief rating or a review. That really helps our podcast become more visible. And we also appreciate you spreading the word about our pod. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.